Hello, and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental nerds, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Nick and I discussed the state of Florida. We talked to Eric Newgard about Port Everglades, coral restoration, and obtaining professional certifications. And finally, humans have three types of cones in our eyes, allowing us to see the colors red through violet. Mantis shrimp, on the other hand, have 16 types of cones. While scientific research shows this does not necessarily mean mantis shrimp perceive minute differences in color or see colors we can't imagine, it does indicate that mantis shrimp is a total badass. <laughs> in Nick's opinion. Don't believe us. Just Google mantis shrimp punch. It's pretty cool. I'm just saying. It sounds cool. <laughs> Hit that music. Registration is now open for NAEP's 2022 Annual Conference and Training Symposium on May 16th through May 19th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. We are going to have our annual update on recent NEPA case law with Pam Hudson, Michael Smith, and EPR's very own Fred Wagner. It's always a fantastic session, so please check it out at www.naep.org. We appreciate all of our awesome sponsors, and they're what keep us show going. If you'd like to sponsor the show, please head over to www.environmentalprofessionalsradio.com and check out the sponsor form for details. Let's get to our segment. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I have a long history with Florida, too, so we can definitely do Florida. Florida. Do you? What's your history oh, yeah. with Florida? So, um, speaking of, like, living, living things, vacations on the cheap, right? Like, when you we don't have a lot of money, you, you find creative ways to do vacations. And so, every other year, we would go to Daytona Beach. We had a friend of a family who had a, a house there, and... They let us stay for about 10 days every, every other year. We had to pick when, you know, and just coordinate all that stuff. But then we just go live like it was, we were just living in there. You know, it wasn't on the beach. It wasn't near the beach, but it was, uh, you know, free, you know, essentially. So the only thing you had to do was cut the grass, except their lawnmower was about the same age as me. And their, the thickest grass in the universe grew in that front yard. <laughs> it was brutal. And of yeah, course, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Florida. So it doesn't matter what time of day it is. It's humid and you're going like you sweat the second you step outside. And um, <laughs> yeah, and my dad wasn't about that action. So it was just me and my brother cutting grass <laughs> and it would be like, and it would stop. It would get stuck. And you just, so that's one of my, uh, my very fond memories of Florida. But the funniest part about it is the second we hit that Florida border, my dad would plop in his one Beach Boys tape. <laughs> and that's what we listened to for 10 straight days. I mean, we're going to Orlando, we're doing whatever we're doing. That's what we're listening to. So I still know all the words to every Beach Boys song <laughs> as a result. Okay. Um, yeah. So you, you guys didn't do like there. the Gatorland or none of the fun like Orange Grove stops or anything? No, no. We did the beach, which was also free. And then we would do theme parks every like every once in a while. We would go like, um, you know, Disney World. And uh, Orlando or Universal Studios, yeah, and that was really fun. Uh, too. Those are not free, so your parents no. were like, "Free stay, but we'll spend all our money in the parks." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is one like... way to experience Florida. Uh, <laughs> is a thing. Um, there's mm -hmm. lots of them. It's not just Disney World. And right, right. Uh, but yeah, that doesn't. You didn't get to see all the cool stuff. Florida has the most amazing habitats. Mm -hmm. The most incredible changes in habitats. You can be on the same hike. In a wetland, in upland scrub, in areas with a ridiculous number of insects, birds, 
you know, always looking for gators, Martha and I, Martha, who lives in North Carolina by, you now, um, mm-hmm. we were joking about how even still five years in Syracuse and I'm still looking for gators in every waterway that I see <laughs> conditioned for that growing yeah, up yeah, in Florida. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there can be gators in a storm pond. I've seen otters crossing four lane highways. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a wild place and it's, it's kind of crazy to see how much population explosion is really encroaching on everything, but there are still some really wild spaces. And I'm with Eric, our guest today. He, Florida is just amazing on the coast inland. There's so much diversity. Well, I think, you know, like I used to in my professional career, I've actually worked a lot in Florida as well. And one of the places that I've worked that I think you've worked with too is McDill air force base. And, you know, it was built in the forties and a lot of what they did in the forties was like, this seems like a good spot. Why not here? Right. And then it turns out, oh, that's where every endangered species in Florida lives, both the birds and in the water. It's just impossible to build there. 40%, no, 90% of it's in the floodplain. They basically have to, when they want to build a new building, they have to take another one down because there's nowhere for them to put it really. Mm -hmm. So it's a really unique ecosystem and it's a really, really cool place to be, to work because it's so so concentrated yeah basically everything in florida started in the 40s and 50s yeah use a lot of these 1950 is the baseline for a, a lot of restoration projects because that's where they have aerial imagery too and that is before mass population came up and prior to that even the sewage systems were on the water some still are and they mostly directed their <laughs> output right into the water mm. directly um so there's still a lot of cleanup efforts in a lot of areas but yeah manatees i mean there are species unique to the whole world in this place it's so if you can get to florida and really get to the those places to see those things it's a magical place but you have to filter through the people (laughs) (laughs) and the traffic and the mosquitoes that sometimes are very very thick also yeah so interesting yeah but like okay so you grew up in what part of florida dunedin florida it's directly west of tampa okay but yeah if you I mean, so kind of give me a, a sense of, and so there's like Pensacola, there's Tampa, Miami, all completely different places, right? Is that mm-hmm. right? And so yeah, how, how do you- Very different cultures. How do you experience all of Florida? Can you do that in one trip? Hmm. One trip. Well, kind of. I mean, I didn't realize even, I grew up in Dunedin, which is on the Western side of Tampa, completely developed. I think recently they've just pretty much developed one of the last remaining natural areas in the county. Um, Great. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, But then when I started working for Hillsborough County, I had no idea. Hillsborough is a giant acreage-wise county. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea that east of Tampa itself was completely rural. Farms, tons of just miles and miles of trails and wetlands galore, all kinds of amazing habitat. No clue. Of course, they're building out that way now. But when I started there, I would get in a truck and drive around and get totally lost. (laughs) No idea where I was and be out in, you know, Florida wilderness, essentially. So I think you can. I think if you visit a city, you have to just get in a car and maybe drive. Ocala is in the middle between Tampa and Orlando. So you can go to the parks, but then get in a car and drive more central to the state. And there are still a lot of really amazing parks. And I think too, that there's some preserve lands too. There's a place called um, Florida forever mm-hmm. and they are a working ranch, but a lot of it has been donated to the state and you can do all these really cool tours, zip lines, horseback riding. 
old Florida cracker horses, which are small, but they were used <laughs> for, um, they were used for herding cattle. So oh. much fun. So, oh, wow. um, there's a lot of stuff you can do if you just take some time to get outside of one of the cities. Yeah. Plus, you know, diving, snorkeling, all those great things. Yeah, of course. Oh gosh. Yeah. But like, uh, it's funny though. You, you kind of just reminded me like one of the NAP conferences we had, there was a talk about when we had it in uh, St. Pete and, uh, there was a, a conversation about Tampa and how all this development had created. And it's the same thing that's going on with lots of cities, right? Where when you build a bunch of infrastructure and you don't plan for how the water drains, it creates yeah. significant flooding issues, right? It's a really huge problem for Florida because the highest elevation in the entire state is like 300 feet. But it was really interesting to see they're trying to come up with really creative ways of, you know, dealing with this problem because it, it is a really big challenge and it makes, you know, having clean water a really difficult thing when you're taking all the oils and all the stuff. From the, so you have farmland outside of the city and then you have all of the junk in the city and then it goes straight out <laughs> into the water body. Yeah. Like you said, it's a really significant challenge that are dealing, they're all dealing with. Yeah, totally. And I guess as far as like, can you experience Miami and you can't florida's a big state long crosswise from top to bottom it's long it's short across it's only like three hours you can go you can be in florida and maybe do saint augustine which then you have the historical stuff Mm -hmm. and pirates and uh, forts and cool things there but if you want to do you'd have to spend some time to do the whole state plus the keys i mean it's amazing yeah the keys amazing place but like yeah, Miami is a completely different world than Tallahassee. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Tallahassee yeah. is almost is kind of being like in uh, Georgia, you know? Yeah, I think Miami is its own world compared to anything else, really. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a unique space. But yeah, I mean, what is it? I think it's actually 12 hours from the top of the state to the Keys. I think it's something like that. It's a, an extremely long, <laughs> yeah. extremely long state. Yeah, so. if, when you drive there from the north, it's like, cool, we're in Florida awesome that means we have only six hours to go <laughs> yeah right, right. <laughs> yeah. all right that's enough uh, uh florida gushing for now so we can always come back to it because there's still so much more but uh, let's get through our interview sounds good hello and welcome back to epr on a very special earth day recording uh Ooh. today yeah <laughs> really excited to be recording on today on earth day obviously not coming out on earth day but hey we're doing our, our part so very excited very to record today okay with Eric Newgard, the Environmental Program Manager at Port Everglades. We're really happy to have you on the show, Eric. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to this. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the port itself. I don't know too much about it. So what is it? Well, Port Everglades is located in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It is the third largest or most active cruise port in the world. Mm -hmm. It's the 11th largest container port in the United States. And it's the I think the second largest petroleum port in Florida, we supply petroleum to all of Southeast Florida, 13 different counties. We supply all the fuel to Fort Lauderdale International Airport, as well as Miami International Airport. So there's a significant amount of activity here. The name is a little confusing. Everglades is to the West, but uh, (laughs) it has a long history behind it. And we're actually on the ocean. We're not in the Everglades. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So why, why do they call it Fort Everglades? Well, it had to do with um, going back to the 1920s when there was a lot of commerce that came out of the Everglades. It has had many different names. It's on Lake Mabel. So that was actually part of the name (laughs) at one time. And uh, Port Everglades (laughs) stuck. And uh, we've been here since 1928. Wow. Well, yeah, Port Everglades is much cooler than Port Mabel. I don't know. Not to disparage (laughs) the name, but I get it. I understand. (laughs) So 
What does it mean to be the uh, environmental program manager for Port Everglades? Uh, it means anything that either, either environmental or people consider to be environmental, it comes to my desk. You know, so I get calls about birds that are attacking people in the parking lot. <laughs> 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 That's what, yeah, yeah. I get calls about bees and we are trying to manage our bee population. We have, um, we're significant produce import port. And because of that, there are a lot of bees that come in. So we try to figure out we're GIS mapping all the bee colonies to try to determine where they're most actively showing up. We have traps set up in the areas where they're most problematic around our cruise terminal parking garages. Last thing we want is someone who's getting on a cruise to be sung in the face by a bee. So we're doing our best to manage them. We're also working with our local Florida Department of Agriculture, who's out here trapping as well. They have found that we have extremely high percentage of Africanization in some of the bees that are coming in here. Basically, they're killer bees. So it is a little problematic. And we definitely want to keep them away from the cruise ship passengers. Yeah, for sure. So, so, so you wouldn't really think about that. It is an environmental issue, but it is something that I engage in because there isn't anybody else here to take care of that. Yeah. So that's definitely a very important thing for your job. But you have other things you do as well, right? Like it's a, it's like you say, it's a catch all. So what else do you guys, uh, what are your big things you work on? Well, I like separating my titles in work, environmental program manager, but I like inserting compliance and stewardship in there. So environmental compliance and stewardship program manager. And I differentiate between compliance and stewardship. Compliance are things we have to do by law. That means taking care of all the contamination issues that we have. Like I mentioned, we are a very significant petroleum port. It has a long history of you know, we've been a petroleum port since the 1930s. There is contamination here. There are contamination issues that have to be addressed. We have a lot of activity. There's discharges pretty regularly that have to be addressed. So that's on the compliance side. We do have environmental permitting also for our infrastructure improvements. We have a very significant project coming up, the deepening of the port. And that has a lot of planning and also compliance issues associated with it. We're trying to advance the project forward. So right now we're very focused on coral impacts and that's probably taken up almost 90% of my job right now is dealing with the coral issues that we're going to be contending with. Hmm. But on a stewardship level, we get to do some fun things. It's maybe 10% of the work I do with stewardship, but we are collaborating with a lot of different nonprofit organizations, one in particular, the South Florida chapter of NAAP. We just had our Earth Day photo at our community oyster gardening lot where we're collecting shells from different restaurants. We're drying them on the lot. We're going to have bagging events with the public to put the shucked oyster shells in bags and then hang them behind people's docks and seawalls to help filter the water and kind of spread the oysters around a little bit. And the next phase will be finding areas where we can put the oysters on the bottom to replace oyster beds that historically existed here. So it's a multi-step process. It's been several years in the making. We're to the point now we're actually collecting shells and we're very excited about engaging as many different nonprofit organizations as we have. We have, I think, five so far. So it's quite a bit of synergy with this. We're also involved with the SFAPs. That's the South Florida's chapter of the NAP. They have a community coral nursery program that started and we have a lot of coral issues we're dealing with here. So we're 
that's a project that SFAP kicked off about seven years ago, and it went through about five years of permitting, and now it's really starting to get some traction. And we're very excited about that, too, and opportunities where we can collaborate with them on that. The bees is another example of something that's not compliance. It's a stewardship, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're also going to be setting up a community seagrass nursery. We have one of the largest one of the largest manatee aggregation areas in Florida. It's the second largest one in Broward County. We have like 600 some manatees this year at our peak. And currently the manatees are struggling because of the loss of seagrass throughout Florida. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping that we can supplement the seagrass that we have in the aggregation area. They come into a power plant cooling canal that's on our property. And we're hoping to supplement the seagrass that exists there. So when they come in in the winter hungry, there's more seagrass for them to eat. So that's another example of a stewardship initiative. So there's a lot of them going on. Um, I'll actually be giving a presentation at the NAP conference about this. We won an award in 2020 because of all the stewardship initiatives. And we're very excited about the programs we're engaged in. And we look forward to finding other opportunities to do more stewardship here. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, that's a lot of really great stuff to hear about and you know a lot to unpack too and so th- would you say the challenges for the port you know you could say it's been around since the you know 20s and does the water table being so high in florida does that influence like how you guys do remediation and cleanup for spills well yes it does we're about three to seven feet to groundwater depending on where we are in the port and in the area where we have the larger contaminant plumes it is about three feet it's a lower elevation area so we have um free product recovery systems that are picking up the product. Right now, we have a memorandum of agreement with the Florida Department of Environmental Protection on advancing different segments of areas that have contamination. We're bringing a lot of them to closure, but we have this large area where there's a very large contaminant plume. And we're currently reconfiguring that area to allow larger tankers to come in. And in doing so, we're going to be more actively doing remediation at that site. But yeah. it just it's ongoing out here. I don't know that it'll ever be complete. And then we have the issues of PFAS, which is a national challenge. And we have the largest PFAS fire department here in Broward County. And PFAS is the only firefighting foam that's effective. And because of our petroleum holdings and our cruise ships and everything here, we don't have another choice. And it's going to be a challenge. We haven't it's a long history, and I think we're in the same boat as everybody else. We don't yeah. know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is really wild. But like I say, it's it's really cool that you get to do multiple things, right? So you, yes, you have to do the cleanup and the compliance, but those stewardship projects are really impactful and really interesting as well. So how do those come to be? How do you start working on those kinds of projects? Well, some of them are just... <laughs> Like magic is really the only word that comes to mind. It's just, it really is magical how all these things just fall into place. I mean, I brought a lot of stuff with me when I came here. Like I mentioned, the coral nursery was a project that SFAP started about seven years ago. I've only been at the port five. So that's something that came with me when I came here. I had no idea that there was the potential for so much interaction with the port, with that coral nursery project. That interaction hasn't truly fulfilled its ultimate level of participation, but we're trying to make sure, I have to be very careful because we're a county agency and we have rules about conflict of interest and I have to be very careful about where I step on things. So 
the coral nursery is something that is a completely community oriented program. It is intended to give the public an opportunity to get hands-on experience propagating, cultivating corals to make them more stewards of our coral reefs and actually just even educate them about the fact that we have our coral reefs offshore here. I don't know the exact statistics or if anybody's even tried to determine them, but I'm guessing maybe 80% of the population in Broward County and Fort Lauderdale area doesn't even know that we have coral reefs within swimming distance of our shore. It's just yeah, they think it's just sand that goes out, you know, to the Bahamas. Yeah. <laughs> and we have the most spectacular coral reefs there, and we want to do everything we can do to protect them. I mean, I do. We do have this deepening project coming up that will impact corals. It's unfortunate that that ha- has to happen, but we also the population of Florida hasn't stopped growing since the 1940s, and yeah. this deepening project is really just keeping up. So we can talk more about that if you like the. Deepening Project has, I just looked it up, it will be 26 years old on May 9th. So um, it's been a long-term project. It's gone through considerable agency review, interagency review, and we have developed a significant program with this Deepening Project in that we have established an interagency working group that has just been phenomenal in working together and a collaborative effort in trying to find ways so we can minimize the impacts from this project. And uh, I'll actually, at the NAP conference, I'll be discussing that in more detail, but it's been remarkable. And so corals is a huge part of what I do. I do have a degree in marine biology, so it's kind of a good fit. I don't, you know, it's just, it's sometimes hard to differentiate between work and pleasure because when on the weekends, when I go diving, I'm doing all the work for the coral nursery and you know, <laughs> right. I just, so I don't know sometimes which hat to wear <laughs> or which hat I'm wearing when I speak. I hear you. I hear you. So how did you end up working at the port then? Is uh, yeah, it, Just a long story. My bachelor's is in natural science zoology, and I graduated during a recession. It was kind of hard to find a job in the field. I worked for a while as a dive instructor on a cruise ship and then um, at a dive shop, managed a dive shop and captain a motor yacht taking, you know, the owner and his family diving. And then I started with the Dade County Department of Environmental Resources Management as a pollution control inspector, and then very quickly became a hydrogeologist there, which had nothing to do with my educational background. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a little bit, but not, you know, I was more of a a biological scientist than a uh, physical scientist. And then from there, I went to the Florida Department of Transportation, and that was quite a unique move for me because... In that position, we were required to do everything NEPA. So that just everything that you could imagine environmental, I was dealing with. And I did that for a while, then was recruited by a consulting firm. I did consulting for 15 years, and then I decided to come back to government. And this opportunity was available, and it's been a pretty perfect fit. Yeah, I mean, it really does sound like it. What you're doing on the weekend still helps your job, your day job. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I should have mentioned that somewhere in between, I got my master's in marine biology, so that even made it a <laughs> perfect fit. Oh, that's so awesome. Well, I'm glad that, that yeah, thank you for walking us through that. But the um, I had a curiosity question, too, because a lot of coastal areas are dealing with climate change and impacts from those such as sea level rise. Is that happening at uh, Port Everglades? Are you guys taking measures to... Well, it's happening across the globe, of course. Right. And right. It, is, it is something that we're... We take into consideration our state legislature has 
a requirement that we look at the 50-year planning horizon, so Object 2070. For example, with the new bulkheads we're putting in the new seawalls, they're designed so we can add up to six feet of additional seawall to them to accommodate up to six feet of additional sea level rise. But a lot of the infrastructure at the port is more than 50 years old, and we also have to be concerned about what happens after that 50-year planning horizon. And SFAP is actually planning to put a workshop together to discuss sea level rise planning beyond the 50-year planning horizon. And that's where things get kind of crazy. And I mean, sea level rise helps with um, the depth of the water in terms of bringing ships in. But we have a lot of infrastructure that will flood. But we have some areas now with the high king tides are already starting flood. So we're already being impacted by sea level rise. And we have ongoing studies trying to determine at six-inch intervals where our infrastructure is most susceptible. And we plan accordingly with our future development, taking those infrastructure challenges into consideration. But it's hard because it's a moving target. I mean, it's, we don't know for sure what's going to happen. It could go the other way. But we have to plan for the worst, and that includes looking beyond the 50-year planning horizon because we hope that some of the infrastructure we're putting in now will have a life expectancy of more than 50 years. Yeah, and that's yeah, it's a big challenge, I think, for a lot of different places. And, yeah, all coastal uh, areas. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, uh, I know, for example, sometimes even where you can build totally changes, right? So are you having to plan for kind of thing where you're not even building new buildings, you have to kind of remove old buildings as well. So it's not even just, you know, new infrastructure, but it's getting rid of old infrastructure safely as well. Well, not so much yet. Within the 50-year planning window, we don't foresee any of those type of impacts. We haven't really evaluated everything that closely yet, but it's after 50 years that things start really sea level the NOAA sea level rise predictions significantly increase after 2070. And we have to look at the whole region to see what's going to happen. And I think we have to plan, start planning now for where we're going to be in 2080, 2090, 2100. It just seems prudent to do so because we shouldn't be making decisions now that might adversely affect the decision that would have to be made later to be able to accommodate those type of changes um, in 60, 70, 80 years. So um, things like our barrier island, it I don't know the exact elevation of it, but I believe it to be less than five feet. So with six feet of sea level rise, we're going to lose our barrier island and that's going to affect our port. You know, we're no longer going to be protected. So we have those type of issues that we have to look at beyond the 50-year planning horizon. And those kind of things fall on my shoulders too, because, <laughs> you know, it just, everybody thinks sea level rise is an environmental issue and it is, yeah. but yeah. yeah. <laughs> definitely specifically a port issue are you the only person on the team is it just you doing all the environmental stuff or do you have a team there i have um, one staff member working on two and we have a lot of consultant support so we have in-house consultant one full-time environmental person plus there's almost infinite number of people that can be drawn upon depending on what's happening plus for every one of our projects we typically have environmental consultants on it so there is a tremendous amount of environmental support from our consulting partners. Yeah, that's great. I did a lot of work with McDill when I worked for EPC. Mm. Do you get most of your projects through grants and or government funding, or do you decide that you want to do something in your plan and try to get grants for it? 
we are very regularly pursuing grants and grants are a substantial component of the funding for our projects. But like with the deepening project that's coming up, that's a cost share program with the Army Corps of Engineers. It really is their project. And I can't remember if it's an 80-20 split, but it they're bearing the burden of most of the cost and we're contributing to it. And so that isn't grant related, although there are some grants associated with ancillary projects associated with it. It's very complicated when you're dealing yeah. with stuff on that scale. All right. Awesome. Well, I went on a cruise in December on the Carnival Mardi Gras, you know, the one with the roller coaster on it. And I think there's only like, I don't know, they're telling us about the other ships. There's very few other ships that are bigger than that one currently, but there's this like race to build bigger cruise ships. I mean, does that ever end? Is that part of the navigational improvement project? You know, or how's that going to end up or play out? Yeah, that's interesting. Usually it's only by six inches to a foot every time. <laughs> and we happen to always get the largest cruise ships here. Right now it's the Wonder of the Seas, which is yeah, um, yeah. a, a um, World Caribbean ship. And before that, it was Lure of the Seas. I, I, I don't recall what Freedom of the Seas maybe was the one prior to that. And they come here to Port Everglades and we're thrilled to have them here. But the cruise ships actually don't draw that much water. They have to have a shallower draft to be able to get into a lot the remote islands at their, their docks and seaports. So I think the wonder of the seas only has a draft of about 30 feet. Mm-hmm. It's really the tankers and the large um, post Panamax or Aframax okay. uh, freighters that have the greater draft and require us to deepen. It's not the cruise ships. Okay. So what else is going on with that navigational improvement project? Well, we have all sorts of impacts. We have uh, impacts to seagrass and other SAVs, merged aquatic vegetation. We have mangrove impacts. We have a large mitigation area we're doing at one of our county parks um, in Westlake Park. We're taking some of these spoil areas that were the result of when the intercoastal waterway was dredged. They took the dredge material and put it on the adjacent, either on adjacent land or they filled adjacent surface waters immediately adjacent to it, those became colonized with some of our more invasive upland vegetation, such as Australian pine, Brazilian pepper. So the project there is going to be scraping those areas down to either mangrove elevation or seagrass elevation and either planting or with natural recruitment, creating those habitats. So um, that's part of what we're doing here as well as managing that project. Awesome. So I was uh, scoping out your LinkedIn and you have a ton of certifications, like a list of probably if anybody wants to know what kind of certifications you could get, just go look at Eric's LinkedIn. It's pretty impressive. (laughs) And um, as a career coach, I get asked all the time. I think it's actually one of the most searched pages on my website is the list of certifications. People want to know if they need to get them, if they should get them, especially recently after they graduate. So I thought you might be the perfect person to ask about certifications and and what you feel the worth of them is. Yeah, I'm a strong proponent of certifications because they've certainly contributed to my career advancement. Some of those are just in the beginning, just tongue in cheek. I just did them for fun. And then I started realizing that there was economic value in them. Um, So I can't remember where I started, but as, especially as a consultant, I noticed that there were a lot of contract opportunities where there were specific certification requirements in them, you know, like for certified wildlife biologist or that, that I saw that many times and that inspired me to get that certification or 
a professional wetland scientist. That is very common as well. So I fortunately have the correct academic background. A lot of these are, they have an academic background requirement where you had to have, you had to have taken specific courses. And I just was very fortunate in that I had all that. And I had the experience and I was able to put it all together. Some of them have exams you have to take and I was able to pass those. And some of them are just really stretches. I didn't have a background in them. For example, I'm a certified photogrammetrist. And I what qualified. <laughs> well, photogram- photogrammetry is um, basically taking aerial imagery and tying it to real world. You know, so mm-hmm. we're so used to that now we don't even think about it. Whenever you yeah, yeah. like do GIS, you get your aerials, or if you go on to Google Earth, you can look through all the history of the aerials. That's basically photogrammetry. But it's also measuring and calculating and just working that has a full spectrum of components to it. Everything from setting up the airplane with the cameras to take all the photographs and setting up the targets and then bringing everything in and geo-referencing it. So I was never involved with the camera and the airplane part of it, but going back to the beginning of my career, probably until the early 1990s, I was working with photogrammetry and I'm just out of the necessity of looking for contamination sites, just trying to figure out prior land uses. So I was qualified to take the exam and I did it, but that was probably one of the harder exams I had to take because there was so much new learning for me. But every one of those certifications has helped me in one way or another, or just really, if nothing else, demonstrate the depth and breadth of my experience and knowledge. So definitely recommend getting any certification you can just so you, so people have a fundamental background understanding of what your, where your expertise are. Awesome. And I think one of the reasons people are are afraid too, is that they don't, there's a lot of worry that, you know, this certification doesn't bear weight or this one isn't certified enough or prestigious (laughs) enough, I guess. So any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's important to see what the culture is in your area. Like in Florida, there is a lot of competition for different contracts. And as a contractor, someone who's putting a contract out on the street, especially with an agency, you want to have as many things in the solicitation to be able to differentiate the entities that apply for the uh, the contract or the grant, whatever it may be, Mm -hmm. and having requirements that they have scientists that are professional wildlife biologists or fisheries professionals or professional wetland scientists, if you're looking for that type of work to be performed, it is something that you can use to differentiate between different consultants or entities that are applying for the grant or the contract. So it's useful from a contractor's perspective. So we see a lot of that here in Florida. I don't know if that's nationwide, if that's, if it's common, but, you know, I could probably list probably a dozen or so that I've seen in uh, different solicitations. And then sometimes I just pick them up for fun. Uh, Fun might not be the right word, but just for (laughs) personal enrichment. Uh, Like I became certified as a arborist and that was just really for personal (laughs) enrichment. I didn't really plan to go and evaluate trees for diseases. It was more, I just wanted to learn more about it. And because I was a certified arborist, and I don't know if I can say this on the radio, but the company I was with, we made over $200,000 in 
fees from tree surveys that we wouldn't have been able to get if I wasn't a certified arborist. I was the only certified arborist mm-hmm. in the company, and that work just flowed in. We were basically handed that because I had that certification. So there are definite economic benefits <laughs> yeah. to these certifications, but in saying which one is best, or it really depends on circumstance and what your area of expertise is in. So, and just opportunities, sometimes opportunities just present themselves. Yeah. And we've had a string of ocean scientists on the show lately, and all of them are divers. So we were thinking we were going to switch it up, bringing you on with the port. And it turns out you're also a diver, which you mentioned earlier. So (laughs) you did say that you do that for fun. Um, How often are you diving? And do you do it locally? What kind of diving is your favorite? Well, I've been diving since, uh, I'm going to give away my age, at least 40 (laughs) years. And um, So since you were three, cool. Yeah, if that works. I'll go with 43. Thank you. <laughs> it actually might be more closer to 50 now, but my first job out of out of my undergraduate degree was as a dive instructor on a cruise ship. And then I managed a dive shop. And as I mentioned, they captain a motor yacht that the owner just, he liked diving as well. And when I went back to get my master's degree, which I did here in Broward County at Nova Oceanographic Center. I was interested in the fish assemblage on the deeper artificial reefs. So I got certified as a trimix diver to be able to dive to those depths. And later I became a trimix instructor. And you know, that was just interesting because we saw I saw a significant difference in the fish assemblage once you get past like 240 feet. And uh, there was actually a species of fish that dominates some of the deeper wrecks that we didn't even know occurred here in Broward County. So that was interesting. But to be honest, um, I am for this coral nursery I mentioned. I'm trying to get a lot of data on what our nearshore reefs look like. So I'm spending most of my dives now just waiting off the beach, diving in 12 to 20 feet of water. And I'm so happy there. I mean, I'm finding the most... (laughs) You stay down four times as long. You don't have to decompress. You don't have to worry about a boat. And I'm seeing the most incredible just imagery. I'm taking photos of that as well. But like a month ago, I went out and drove the drove this intact cropper server cornice reef. It's uh, the staghorn coral. And as far as you could see in clear visibility, so probably 100 feet, all you could see was this perfectly pristine Cropper server cornice, and I have a picture on my Facebook page and I think my LinkedIn page is the background. It's just one of the more, just uh, especially considering how much impact our core reefs have sustained in the last few years, seeing something that remarkable is just so refreshing and uplifting. So I, I don't know what it is, but all of a sudden I'm enjoying just the shallow stuff now. That's awesome. Yeah. Coming from Tampa Bay, where I was the reef manager, I think I'm a little bit jealous. <laughs> Our visibility was about six inches. Well, I, I grew up in Tampa, actually, and did plenty oh, of dives off. Yeah, plenty of dives off of uh, off the coast there. Nice. Yeah. Well, well, you're you're also a member of the South Florida AEP chapter, which you mentioned earlier. When did you join, and what benefits do you have from that experience? Oh, I could go. This is only like an hour podcast. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm actually giving a presentation at the NAP conference. Um, one of them is about SFAP and the different programs that have been developed in habitat restoration. I mentioned earlier the coral nursery and the oyster gardening and the seagrass nursery. And 
there's just been a tremendous amount of opportunities to do things that I can't do in the workplace. So I have a, I'm in this field because I have an intrinsic interest in it. You know, I didn't do this for the money. (laughs) And so I really enjoy the public outreach. I enjoy sharing what I know about our natural resources and our environment with the public. And I don't get to do that much. I do more of that in this position, but less than as a consultant and some of the other positions. So these chapters allow you to do things that you're sometimes restricted about doing in your workplace. And we've done some wonderful things with the South Florida chapter. Uh, And there was a question about how long I've been involved. The South Florida chapter, I think, was incorporated in 1992 or 91. And I became involved in it shortly after, sometime in 92. I wasn't there in the first day, but I've been there since maybe six months after it started. And it's out of all the organizations you can see from my certifications, I have a ton of other organizations I'm involved with. The local chapter of NEP, the South Florida chapter here, has just been remarkable in terms of opportunities to do enriching activities. So we've done, um, at one point, I was an instructor for the Florida Master Naturals Program, and we were offering the full suite of classes through SFAP. That was extremely rewarding in terms of we had multiple other instructors from our board of directors, from our membership that also participated. So it gave us an opportunity all to get together and share our knowledge with the public through these classes. And that was extremely rewarding. These habitat restoration projects we have going on are very exciting. They're getting a lot of attention now locally and It's just exceptionally rewarding opportunities that I could not find through any other organization. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great to hear. And um, yeah, it really is. And we really appreciate that. That's why we wanted to ask. So yeah, we're rolling through our questions here and and I'm going to take a second here to just double check. So the coral nursery program, I'm going to ask you about that. If we've already covered enough of it and you don't, you know, there's more to say, that's fine, but I did want to ask it. So we like to ask questions that are fun or memorable about stories and working in the field. So I want to hear a little bit more about the synergy you've encountered with the South Florida chapter's community coral nursery program. That's a great question because I'd love to share what happened in the last few weeks. I mean, <laughs> as I mentioned, this is something we started seven years ago. We started it when we were teaching the Florida master naturalist courses because we're teaching these courses on coastal ecosystems and We're teaching the students about corals, but we didn't really have any hands-on opportunities. There are programs down in the Keys where there is some access, but we wanted to provide complete access for the public to be able to actually fragment corals and cultivate corals and do different types of reproductive strategies and do science experiments. And that resource was not available. So our main objective was to provide that resource for the public. We have a lot of members in our that have degrees in marine biology and they're working in upland environments and they're not really utilizing their expertise or their educational background as much as they would like. So another objective was to provide that opportunity for our members to do things that they can't do because of their work constraints. So we went through about five years of regulatory permitting. It's a pretty complex project. Uh, it involves about 2 million tires that had been deployed off of the 
on the reefs off of Broward County. The wow. county is actively removing about a million, maybe a one and a half million of them, but there's still plenty on the reefs and other areas where they just can't get. So a key component of this nursery program was actually going down, taking the tires off the reef, taking the corals that are growing on the tires, putting them into our coral nursery, and then disposing of the tires properly. It's kind of grown beyond that because we'd have additional opportunities to get corals. And it's moving very quickly now. And you were asking about the synergy. Two weekends ago, we went to the Tortuga Music Festival and had a booth mm-hmm. in their conservation village. And there were a number of reasons we did that. The concert, the Tortuga Music Festival, they share the proceeds from their merchandise sales and the sale of alcohol with the conservation village members. So there was an income opportunity, but that wasn't the only reason. We went there also because it was an opportunity to show what we had going on. And just connecting with the other exhibitors in the conservation village, we made all these contacts that have just exploded in the last two weeks. Um, it, it was just really amazing. And I, I could go on for hours about it, but it, <laughs> it's just, it's actually mind-numbing the magic that that synergy created and um, all these partnerships have developed and everybody's very excited about not just what we're doing, but what they're doing and how it relates to what we're doing. We're all basically trying to improve the quality of our reefs and the ocean, conserve our ocean habitats. And just collectively we're all getting together and it's, um, it's quite magical. It's that's 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 the best way to describe it. Yeah. It's almost like uh, you're saying, be creative in the way you conduct outreach and good things will happen. Yeah. So it was just a minor step we made to sign up for it, but the rewards have just been tremendous. So on Sunday, we're going to another event. It's a um, Ocean Conservation Day. We're going to have a booth there. And then in two weekend after this, I'm going down to Key Largo for the Florida Marine Science Educators Association to share with them our coral nursery and just really remarkable how much synergy is developing around everything. That's awesome. And you've only just started. So I can imagine in a couple of years, you'll be amazed at how far you've gotten. Two million tires and all that coral to replace off of that. Isn't it nice of someone to have left that there for you to do? <laughs> the answer to that is no, but. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a very sarcastic comment. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, well, that is, you know, speaks to the networking we're always talking about here get out there and meet people who are like-minded and magic will happen. Like you said, so we're pretty much out of time. Is there anything else you wanted to mention before we go? No, it's really been exciting talking to you guys. It's always fun. And uh, I wholeheartedly recommend that being involved with our local NAP chapters. I mean, that is, there's so much opportunity. You can do anything you want with these chapters. You can, it's like a blank slate and you can go out there and do all these habitat restoration projects, or you can do community outreach. Um, and it's just wonderful to be able to engage other environmental professionals with very diverse backgrounds in these things. And we have someone who is a archeologist who's very much engaged in our coral nursery program now. And, you know, we have chemical engineers that are getting excited about the coral stuff. And it's just, uh, it's really I think that in terms of the environmental profession, our local chapters are where it's at. And I really hope that everybody's out there engaging in them as much as possible. Yeah, that's awesome. And I agree with you. 
there's some chapters who are, I mean, if I would say your chapter is, is one of the role models out there. So if there's another chapter struggling, you can also reach out to Eric and that group and see, you know, how can we do what you do? And I, I would love to see the chapters more actively engaged with each other even. But um, Eric, so that said, where can people get in touch with you? Well, um, can you put my email address up? Yeah, in the audio, so we can't put it up, but we'll put okay. it in the, sure. <laughs> in the yeah, description. So it's, my email address is uh, E, and then my last name, so it's E-N-E-U-G-A-A-R-D at Broward.org. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for being here today. This has been a lot of fun. It has. Thank you very much. Happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. That's our show. Thank you, Eric, for joining us today. It was really fun to learn about Port Life. Be sure to check us out each and every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Bye. See you, everybody.